Welcome to the podcast, Commonwealth Magazine's weekly podcast of politics and policy and the people who practice and influence both. I'm Commonwealth reporter Jack Sullivan. There's a few truisms about politics, but none more accurate than this. Money matters. Some say, though, the Supreme Court has skewed that with its Citizens United decision, and as a result, some money matters more than others because now big business can give big money to help candidates and issues, often anonymously. But those who support the Citizens United decision said all it did was create a level playing field, allowing corporations to do what others and unions and elsewhere have been able to do for years. The decision, in effect, declared corporations are people with the same rights when it comes to political speech. But opponents are working to change the law by changing the Constitution to prohibit that meeting. Massachusetts voters will have some say on that with a question on the ballot next week that would create a commission to study and look at proposing changes for a constitutional amendment. Joining us to talk about it today are David Ropeek, a member of the Yes on Two committee. David is a former longtime reporter for WCVB Channel 5 in Boston. He's a consultant on risk perception and communication, an author, and a former instructor and lecturer at Harvard. Welcome, David. Hi. Also joining us today is Bradley Smith, a leading expert on campaign finance, whose book, Unfree Speech, The Folly of Campaign Finance, was cited by the court in the Citizens United decision. Brad is the former head of the Federal Elections Commission, appointed as a Republican member by then-President Bill Clinton, and later served as chairman under President George W. Bush. He's a law professor and a graduate of Harvard Law School. Welcome, Brad. Thanks, Jack. David, let me start with you, since your group is the reason for this discussion. Uh, the ballot question would allow for the formation of a commission that would make recommendations for constitutional changes. That doesn't sound like it's a monumental movement towards changing the ruling. What is it that triggered this, and what do you expect would come out of it? It's been interesting to me. I've never been involved in politics. This kind of got me motivated because the general sense that I've had, along with a lot of other citizens, is the government's no longer in our control. It's mostly in the control of people with deeper pockets. And so um, when I first saw this campaign, I went, well, that's a pretty weak ask. Yeah. But the Citizens United case that you mentioned, and forgive me, but I think slightly mischaracterized, but Brad probably will know that even better than me, in terms of what it did. It didn't actually give corporations rights. They had them from a long time ago. It, it expanded what they could do with their money. Um, crystallized what, for a long time, I think, in the United States had been a growing general desire for some reasonable campaign finance reform, about which Brad has written. And that's going to take a while to do. You can't do that all at once. You can't say, let's amend the Constitution tomorrow and go right to that. That momentum that Citizens United, you know, I think 87% of America said overturn that, crystallized what I think was the, was the final seed of a movement that's taking a while. And this is an incremental step that adds to the momentum of that movement. Well, help me out here, Brad. I mean, that doesn't sound like it's all that onerous. That uh, you know, it, it, it's it's an attempt to use the constitutional process to uh, limit you know anonymous corporate donations. How are co uh, corporate donations good for democracy? Well, <clears throat> well, let's talk about how corporate donations can help democracy. Let's suppose, for example, that you have a factory and it's uh, out in some part of the western part of the state. And uh, it wants to. Uh, it feels it's going to be harmed by 
uh, President Trump's trade wars and tariffs or something like that, right? And it needs to say, look, uh, if you support this policy, if you support these candidates, it's going to cause us to lay off workers or maybe even close. This would be decimating to this town. The people have a right to hear that, and they have a right to hear it from the corporation itself. So it's not just about the right of a corporation to speak. It's also about the right of, of we as voters to hear different views and to act on those views that we hear. Well, one of one of the extensions of the Citizens United uh, decision uh, was the creation of these super PACs and, and, and in turn some of these uh, 501c4 uh, um, organizations which don't require disclosure uh, of, of a lot of the donations. If, in fact, you're going to be allowing corporations to do that, shouldn't they have to identify themselves? Well, there's two things here. Uh, first is th- there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. I mean, Citizens United does not strike down any disclosure laws. What you have with uh, the sense of corporate disclosure is there's been nothing changed in corporate disclosure by Citizens United. And there are a lot of things that are misunderstood. For example, super PACs do disclose their donors. Uh, So you have a very small percentage of money, which is money spent by trade associations and by nonprofit organizations such as Sierra Club or the Rifle Association or the Natural Resources Defense Council, organizations like that, that don't have to itemize their contributions. Note that even those organizations have to say what they're spending in political races. So you can find out who is doing the spending, what groups are doing it. You just don't know the names of all of their donors. That totals up to something in the neighborhood of 2 to 3 percent uh, nationally in terms of what we spend on politics. I don't know the exact numbers here in Massachusetts, but it's not a very big percentage of the money. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a red herring to debate this issue in the context of thinking that that is the major problem. I think the real issue, and one on which I think David and I will have some disagreements, is whether we should be willing to let uh, corporations and other wealthy individuals and so on uh, spend money without regulation or with less regulation. Well, he actually makes a good point, David. I mean, I, I know that when I go to vote on something, uh, on an issue, on a candidate, I want information. I want as much information as possible. I want to know who's going to be impacted. I want to know who's going to be influenced. Um, why would why would we want to limit people? Granted, they're much richer people than us, but but why would we want to limit people's ability to be able to have their voices heard? Um, the the idea, as I understand it, behind the amendment is to only limit it to the degree where everybody has equality of speech, and I don't think that offends anybody. It, what do you mean by equality? Well, of what I mean is that if somebody has a hundred million dollars or ten million dollars or fifty thousand, I mean, I have Democratic friends in Concord, Massachusetts, who give to Democratic. Uh, officials and President Obama and so forth, and they had access to him because of their money that I don't have. And that is inequality in democracy. That's inequality in the influence on government. This is specifically what Justice Scalia and Justice Roberts and others have said in, in, and all the way back to 1976 in Buckley v. Vallejo, which is the Burger Court. All along, there has been a, a, a recognition that unequal money gives unequal influence. Now, my understanding is, and correct me, law professor, if I'm wrong, that what the court has said since Citizens United, in other cases too, McCutcheon, for example, there was another case in Arizona, they have specifically addressed the undue influence that wealth brings to government by saying, and this was the operative phrase that Scalia wrote into the majority opinion, I think it was in McCutcheon, 
The only wealth that is undue influence that effectively violates the law is a quid pro quo flat-out bribe. Everything else is influence and access, and it's appropriate, Justice Roberts wrote, for politicians to be grateful for big contributions, but that's okay. So Justice Stevens said in his, in his dissent on Citizens United, that just defies common sense. That just plain defies common sense. And that's why 19 states, including red states and blue states, have said that's just not fair. And but that's they, why. But they have not done it in a binding resolution. No, 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 no. And, and the, the Massachusetts idea is to add to the momentum of the movement that really started in the anger after Citizens United, what just doesn't seem to make common sense. Uh, that wealth has undue influence by creating a formal commission, which is not binding. Its recommendations to the legislature are still not binding, but it's formal. It's a body under law as opposed to the non-binding way that 19 other states or 18 other states have done it so far, asking for this. And that is a more formal step. And then from that, hopefully, the legislature would send that to Congress and under Article 5, uh, Two-thirds of both houses have to send out to the states exactly the same language for 38 states, I think it is, to ratify. So it's, uh, it kind of ups the officialness of the process a little. If, is, is that a problem, Brad? Does, does wealth create undue influence? And, and when you look at it, for instance, when, when you were at the FEC, um, you were charged with overseeing uh, regulations that limit individual uh, donations. Uh, you know, under the McCain-Feingold Act, some of the uh, donations uh, that went to uh, electioneering, uh, things like that. I is it fair to say that, uh, that, that wealth does give somebody a larger megaphone? Sure. People have, who have money have a larger megaphone, and they can get their views out better than people who don't. But lots of people have lots of differences that enable them to do different things. Uh, some people, for example, like, say, me, have, have a nice job as a law professor that allows me to time to to do podcasts like this and write op-eds and I have the right skill set to do those kinds of things, to write amicus briefs in important court cases. And that gives me a lot more influence than most people have. And it doesn't mean I'm worth more than, you know, my high school classmates who chose very different types of careers or were limited by their talents to different types of careers. Uh, and they may be more talented than I am, but but they, they don't have the, the political talents, right? So we're not all equal. And I think one of the key things you have to remember about the First Amendment is that it's intended to keep the government out of the game of deciding who's equal and you know who needs to speak more to be equal and who needs to speak less. The idea was that we can't trust the government to make those decisions fairly. Inevitably, lawmakers will be tempted to find that people who agree with them probably need more influence and people who don't agree with them probably need a bit less. Uh, it's just not fair as it stands right now. These people are attacking us and, and you know, so this is exactly what, why we have the First Amendment. And what we recognize is we're equal when we go to the ballot box. We get to, we're equal when we get to hear those messages, and we're equal as we make up our mind and we go to the ballot box and we vote. But we're not intended to be equal in all aspects of our political influence in but, life. But yet we do, and the courts have upheld limits on individual uh, donations. We recently they, had a They yeah. have, but, but they've done that on the rationale that David mentioned, which is that anti-corruption rationale. They have not gone quite so far as to say it has to be outright bribery. In other words, they've allowed, because most campaign contributions 
aren't like bribery at all. Most campaign contributions are people giving money to candidates who think like them. But they've said that it, you know, there's that at least possibility of sort of quid pro quo, you know, if I give, I'll vote, or if I get, I'll vote. And so that's that's where the court has allowed restrictions in that area. But even there, it's recognized that that does infringe on First Amendment rights, and it's tried to balance those and, and minimize that. And thus, it's allowed people to spend money independently of a candidate so that there's not that opportunity to bargain for a quid there's there's a there's an important point on the individual limits. So in the what was McCutcheon 2012 2014 2014 2014. So the April same, Fool's Day, David, which you should like. <laughs> okay, so we'll remember April Fool's Day. The Supreme Court ruled in a case. I think McCutcheon was the one who brought it. And he said, "I want to give to lots of candidates, but the total is limited. And so why shouldn't I be able to give?" my 2500 or whatever it is to Jack and Brad and Paul and whoever, and if that exceeds the cap, shouldn't I be able to? And the court said, yeah. And basically the cap on individual donations now is significantly loosened by the same court that asked for the Citizens United case to be broadened from a narrow one with one group wanting to broadcast something within 30 days. Justice Roberts himself asked for the case, as Brad will know, to be broadened to the whole thing about corporations and unions. Um, This same court has been looking for ways, it seems to us, to allow uh, a broadening of money a freeing of money into politics. And, and it raises the, the central issue that Brad has touched on. It would be a great conversation to have with a scholar like you. The idea of free speech, the word free is magic. And the word government out of my life is appealing to most of us, regardless of what party you're in, because government is, can get too big and step on your neck. But we limit free speech in a number of ways in America already. Whenever the Supreme Court itself has found that that serves the public interest. You can't, as you know, Jack, as a former journalist and as I know, you can't knowingly lie about somebody in writing, libel, or speech, slander. You can't speak in the commission of a crime. You can't speak to incite violence. You can't speak, and now the Burger Court in 1976, a liberal court said money is speech, but you can't speak or spend to send obscenity, child pornography, There are lots of limits to free speech already, to freedom of speech, when the complete unfettered freedom conflicts with basically the Constitution. And our argument is that reasonable limits on the speech of money in campaigns absolutely serves the founding father's idea of democracy. But but – to be fair, the determinant for whether or not it violates the Constitution is the Supreme Court. That's correct. And the Supreme Court did determine in Citizens United that that the, the McCain-Feingold limits on corporations violated the Constitution. And in that case, it was under the previous Supreme Court's findings that corporations should have the same rights as individuals, then referring back to the 1976 Buckley v. Vallejo, which found that money is speech. And what we're saying is we have to press back against the unfettered 
use of money as speech because those inequalities in a modern campaign really have a lot more difference than a good op-ed writer or a guy who can't write op-eds. A couple of things, Jack. Uh, first, one thing that David's pointed out is worth noting for listeners is that this uh, proposal goes far beyond overturning Citizens United. It would overturn a number of precedents, including ones going back nearly a half century. It should, uh, Buckley v. Vallejo in particular, which is nineteen early 1960s. This initiative, you mean decision. the Massachusetts right, question? Right, And question the amendment two. idea, yeah, question the whole two. idea. Yep. Right. And, and what we should recognize here is we think about it. So, so David's given a number of ways in which we might limit speech. But notice none of those, we, we've never said we're going to limit direct political speech, the core of the First Amendment. We've limited at things for their harm op, uh, in addition to the speech that element of, of it, not, not limited political speech directly. And it should be noted that prior to the 1970s, we had no real uh, limits on campaign funding at all. So the idea that we have to have these limits in place to have a successful democracy is really uh, uh, something that existed from between the passing of the Federal Election Campaign Act Amendments of 1974 and Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976. The rest of our history, we've really not had these kinds of limits on independent expenditures uh, made by individuals and so on. And so, can, can I interject I a thought? I'm sorry, sure. I, I don't Please. want to be rude and interrupt. We haven't had modern elections until like 1960, 1965, 1970. The, the need, as I forget who wrote the Buckley v. Vallejo argument that money is speech, but he made a persuasive, which judge it was, it might have been Berger. Uh, well, know, it was an eight to one decision, yeah. per curiam. It was written for the court. So yeah, we don't and it really was, know it who was wrote a liberty kind of decision, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I everybody love loved it. Talk. for the the podcast (laughs) listeners Um, they made a pretty persuasive case that in the modern era we're not talking about the founding fathers here Brad forgive me you need money to reach a 330 million population okay okay let's just accept that but Brad used the word harm as the basis for the other rulings by the Supreme Court that that kind of speech could harm people and therefore there are rights in conflict we argue that the disproportionate influence of major contributions, not only from corporations and unions, but from wealthy individuals, harms democracy itself and therefore is a legitimate reason for reasonable limits so that everybody can speak, but the loudest wallet doesn't drown out everybody well, else. Let me, let me ask something here before Brad jumps in. Did you have a problem with Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 911? I, as a journalist, have a real big problem with Michael Moore generally because I don't trust three I mean, quarters that, of what that, he says because he's coming from a bad point. Not No, a, a point of view that I agree with, but super biased. I don't trust much of his information. But it, which, which is the precursor to my question is that the reason for Citizens United was there was an allowance for Michael Moore to be able to show Fahrenheit 911. Uh-huh. Uh, without any kind of restrictions on it as, as far as speech, but that was not applied to Citizens United and their desire to show this film on uh, on the Clintons. Is it, a, granted, we're talking about something political here, but are we also talking about something ideological? Like corporations, as we, for the most part, the perception is that they are conservative, that they are right of center. Would we be having this discussion if Citizens United was a libertarian or a left-leaning organization? That's a great question and an insightful question. It gets to what Brad was talking about earlier, too. Um, First of all, this amendment movement is kind of tangled up between two parts. It's incorporating two parts. I wouldn't say tangled up. 
One is what has been for decades the general sense in America that rich guys mostly control stuff because they have fat wallets. That's campaign finance. The second one is Citizens United affirming, not creating, affirming the right of organizations like corporations and unions to spend the money, I think it's just into super PACs, right? So those are related, but if we completely cure the Citizens United, they're not human individuals, as many amendment proposals in Congress already propose, we still have to get at this larger question that we were talking about, which is the undue influence on money. And that, I think, clearly resonates with the general sense of fairness that the whole concept of our democracy is built on. Jack, I'd like to back up a bit if we could, because the historic argument David makes is, I mean, it's true in the sense that, right, we didn't have TV advertising prior to the 1960s and so on, much of it. But that kind of argument actually has been made all the way back through American history. In the 1920s, it was, oh, the incredible cost of getting on radio. In the 1850s, it was, oh, the incredible cost. Now we have to have these – now we have this mass electorate. We've let people without property vote, you know, and now we have to have gaslight – or I mean torchlight parades and we have to, you know, distribute pamphlets. In other words, campaigns cost a certain amount of money and they always have. It costs money to reach people. You know, Procter & Gamble, that's one company. They spend more money a year advertising than we spend in a four-year period for a presidential election. Um, it costs money to reach people. And Brad's we, point's well taken. This has been an that. issue for a hundred years, the undue influence of money on government. And, Teapot and dome. Yeah. So, so I keep going back to, to saying again that I think part of our you know, approach to the First Amendment was we recognize that there are problems with money in politics. We recognize that some people have influence and more than others, but we don't really want the government deciding whose influence, to use the term you open with, is undue. You know, what is undue influence? Maybe it's due influence. I'm, you know, somebody's really persuasive or they have a really good point. Um, and, you know, listeners, again, get to decide we just don't put ourselves in the position of trusting the government to do that. And that's really what you, what you come down to. You know, I'm always reminded of the, you know, the quote generally attributed to Churchill, you know, democracy is the worst of all forms of government except for all others that have been tried. And that's largely true with campaign finance. It's nice to sit and think, you know, let's try to regulate this and jimmy the system just right and it'll all be fair and we'll get the better results. In fact, this country's done really well during the period when, you know, nobody was worried about campaign finance, we were electing, you know, Lincoln and, you know, Grover Cleveland and Coolidge and, and Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower. And then we passed the Federal Election Campaign Act and elected Nixon and Carter. And, you know, I, I don't know that you can say that there's really that connection between good government. And I think it's very important to keep hammering on that point. Why do we have a First Amendment it really is because we don't trust government to do that. Maybe we've changed now. Maybe people trust an administration led by Donald Trump to decide who should speak more and who shouldn't. If, uh, you know, I think that's one thing we can all agree on is that Donald Trump's the guy we want making those kinds of decisions, right? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I interrupt. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so, so, but, you know, you know I, and I say that, of course, obviously, to, to, to elicit, in a sense, that reaction. That, that's what we have to think about. So, so there's an interesting point, and I was just remembering, uh, you know, I'm a student of all of this, a newbie student of all of this, and have been reading about the history of campaign finance reform. And back to the late 1800s and early 1900s, Congress was pressed to pass laws that limited the undue influence of money that gave some people louder voices than others. The Teapot Dome scandal, I don't remember the details of which, were basically 
uh, the president gave some land to a guy who was going to do a whole lot to help him politically with a lot of money. And there was campaign finance reform passed out of that. The reason I cite that is, not to go back and forth on the historic point, you, you're right, Brad, it's all, that, my, that is my point, that it has always offended the general sense of how democracy is supposed to work that big wallets can drown out small ones. And that, yes, and this is ideology. I think this is big government, little government. I think this is a kind of a conceptual thing. Yes, there's a role for government to level the playing field in the name of the democracy the founding fathers wanted. That's what government does. That's part of what government does. And in this case, the amendment would ask Congress, uh, it's not really bipartisan, it's two partisans, right? But it would ask the government process to make the rules, but it would say we've got to go beyond what they've done so far and the court's done so far. That's the need for the but, amendment. But, but let's put that – so I made the comment sort of jokingly, but let's put that in concrete terms. Yeah. So you get a constitutional amendment that says Congress has the ability to set appropriate limits on money or something like that. Are you comfortable with President Donald Trump and a Republican Congress – without filibuster, might nuke the legislative filibuster if necessary, making those rules. And of course, if you're on the other side of the spectrum, are you comfortable with, you know, President Cory Booker and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi's Congress making that decision? And I think that takes us back again, why we have a First Amendment. Yeah, we have a right to amend the First Amendment. That's what self-government's all about. But that is what we're talking about doing. I think it is a slippery slope. And let me, let me share with you a personal story. Jack may remember this. There was a famous news case, the Charles Stewart case in Boston, where a guy jumped off a bridge and then admitted that he had made up a thing about a black guy shooting him and his wife. And I was a reporter at the time and got a source, who I still won't name, to tell me that the guy had confessed, which broke a huge story. The prosecutors needed that confession from the person who'd heard it, not me, I'm hearsay, to prosecute that person. And um, I wouldn't relinquish my source for the chilling effect on the media and so forth. But that was a free speech thing. And I barely almost went to jail defending exactly what you're saying, Brad, unfettered free speech. But I think there's room in this case for a general acceptance. And the general public has said it in red states and blue states and 19 states that are Wyoming and South Dakota and, and so forth that there is, as it has done before, room for the Supreme Court or our government to level the playing field in the interests so of democracy. Let me so, come Brad, back, I'll give you the last word. Let, Sorry. Well, let me come back then in, in, in two ways, and let's see how that plays out. In Citizens United, you had a citizens group funded by voluntary contributions, not a for-profit corporation, wanted to make a movie about a major presidential candidate in an election year, a documentary movie, and the government said, no, you can't do that. Uh, I'm not sure that corresponds with the First Amendment. A second example of how it comes about is the actual Federal Election Campaign Act portions that were struck down in Buckley v. Vallejo. That placed a limit of $1,000 on what a group, a large group such as the Sierra Club or Planned Parenthood or the NRA could say, quote, relative to a candidate, relative to, not even proposing their election. So this is the problem, again. If you don't have these constitutional strictures, you do get down to brass tacks. And it's nice to think it's going to be all warm and fuzzy. We're all going to be equal at the end of the day. But I think when you really add it up, you can see from looking at how Citizens United was treated and you can see from what was the terms that were struck down in Buckley, that it's a very dangerous road to it take. It is a slippery slope, but it needs to be done to restore, you said, trust in government. Trust in every institution of government is in 
all-time lows, and I think the undermining of faith in the public sense that we have control over our government is why. All right. Well, then I'll have the last word. <laughs> Um, thank you. I, I, this has been a, um, a very lively uh, uh, podcast for me. Uh, so I want to say that that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. We'd like to thank Bradley Smith and David Ropeek for joining us. Thank you, guys. Enjoyable for me, Thank too. you, Jack. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud or subscribe to it on iTunes. You can also listen to it by going to our website, www.commonwealthmagazine.org, and click on the fish. Tune in again next week for another edition of the podcast. I'm Commonwealth reporter Jack Sullivan. Thank you for listening. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised.